Parents who are at home with their children who have those means are probably doing at least or a better job than schools can do. That's what I consider real learning. Learning that we do when no one's watching, learning that isn't being evaluated by someone else. I think where we go wrong is not paying attention to where that spark of motivation ignites and then letting the kids take the lead for next steps. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and we've got an exciting show ahead of us today with Dr. Rina Eupidus. Rina is a professor of education at Queen's University. Her research and curriculum projects have explored teacher, artist, and student transformation through the arts. She herself is a musician, a visual artist, and a timber frame carpenter. In 2012, she was awarded the Prize for Research Excellence from Queen's University, and in 2018, she was inducted as a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Rina has authored or co-authored 10 books and has published nearly 100 papers in peer-reviewed journals and conference proceedings. Her curricular units break down the barriers between disciplines, bringing in visual arts, music, science, literature, social studies, and everything you can think of into real-world, authentic projects that connect with students emotionally. Very excited today to speak with uh, Dr. Rina about what she's been doing during the COVID crisis, her views on post-secondary education, and the role of schools in fostering, nurturing, and developing learning. So hope you like this show, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Please like us on iTunes, and here's Dr. Rina. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and, uh, and, and our listeners. Uh, really, we wanted just to get an idea of, of who you are, what you do, and uh, well, how long you've been in education, and just your story. Oh, that's a lot of questions, Benjamin. <laughs> Um, so who am I? My name is Rena, Rena Eupidus, and I officially, my official job is I'm a professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario in Canada. Um, and that occupies a lot of my life and my time and my energy, but it's not the only thing I do. Um, in, at Queen's, I'm, uh, I work in two different faculties. I work in the Faculty of Education and I prepare future teachers for not just teaching in schools, but also in other educational settings. And I also am cross-appointed to the School of um, Environmental Studies. And much of my other life when I'm not at the university has to do with sustainability education. So the second sort of major um, part of my life, my work life, is that I run an off-grid educational retreat center called Wintergreen Studios. And so much of what I know of you has been about taking uh, teachers and preparing them to provide kids with different kinds of learning experiences than what we might be used to in more traditional settings. Um, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to during this COVID crisis. So I know you went on them in the woods yesterday. Uh, what other things have you been doing to occupy your time during, during uh, the, the lockdown? 
going to the woods yesterday was more to occupy my soul than my time. <laughs> that's um, not, that's important. No, no shortage of things to do. So during the lockdown, um, my queen's work has carried on a pace. Uh, the major change, however, being that immediately we found ourselves teaching remotely. And in my case, this term, I was teaching music education and the idea of teaching music uh, to a whole bunch of people on a Zoom screen was incredibly daunting. Um, the essence of making music for me is to be in community with other people. And much as I um, enjoy the various online uh, offerings that we've both received and created in these past few months, music is a tough one to do that way, especially with people who aren't yet musicians, um, but are learning, learning the craft. So part of lockdown has simply been, um, how do I take a course that had a lot of meaning face-to-face -face and create something that still has meaning virtually and is probably going to be quite different, and it in fact was. So that's what I've been doing. Um, unlike some of the people on Facebook who seem to be making sourdough bread, this has not been something I've had time to do. But I am finding now um, with most of my family home and close that um, we are settling into a rhythm that isn't quite as difficult as it was at the beginning. Uh, I guess another way to put that is we've sort of made a new normal with new rituals and new ways of being. So um, like many people who have the privilege to work from home, I've figured out how to do it. And I've managed to keep sane because I live in the country and I have access to acres and acres and acres of green space. And one of the things that you bring up about the difficulty of transferring physical teaching, physical learning to online is much like music that, that shows it quite evidently that you need to have more interactions and relationships and, and, and just more of a, um, a personal touch uh, atmosphere. But you could say that for just about any discipline, even though some of them are more difficult than others. But it brings us to a question of how do you feel that COVID is exposing some of the issues uh, within within schools right now uh, in terms of how things were, how things are going to be, some of the, these transitions? What, what are your views in terms of, of what we're learning about schools and learning in general because of COVID? That's a really interesting question, Benjamin, and I can't give it a blanket answer because I think it is highly dependent on um, one's socioeconomic circumstances. Mm -hmm. I think in the best case, uh, with parents with means, and by means I don't mean just financial resources, I also mean um, intellectual resources and an imagination. I think that uh, parents who are at home with their children who have those means are probably doing at least or a better job than schools can do, with the exception of the missing human contact that kids are not going to have with their peers. Um, but I expect, and you know, I've got some anecdotal evidence to that uh, to that point. I expect that a lot of what's happening at home is pretty great in terms of what we would conventionally call learning. Um, especially in families where kids are able to take some lead in ownership and the choices of what they're studying, and I use that term loosely, um, I think 
some amazing stuff can happen and probably shows us that more of that kind of let the child be the leader approach is possible in schools and more possible than we than we think. So that brings us to our question. If we look at different environments and yes, the socioeconomical strains are certainly uh, evident even just because some people don't even have access to computers, but transferring what we're finding out now, um, how has your definition, your understanding of learning changed, if at all, or, or what is your understanding of learning and how does mm. it fit into the current context? I don't think my, my definition of learning has changed one little bit. It's only been reinforced. And mm -hmm. um, a question that I like to ask my undergrad students every year, I've been asking it for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years now. So I've got several, many thousands of answers. Um, and the question is this, I ask people to think, these are adults, so they're people in their early 20s. I ask them to think of something that they love to do, that they consider a passion or a hobby some kind of learning that they undertake um, because they love it out of, you know, they're not doing it because it's required. They do it of their own volition. They might be doing it if they didn't have to sit in class with me. And I ask people to think of something that they love to do. You know, what is that thing? And I don't ask them to reveal it. But the next question I ask is whether that learning has anything to do with the arts, with the body or the natural world. And everybody's hands go shooting into the air. I've never seen anyone not put up their hand for that. And people are thinking of things like hiking, um, baking uh, croissants, playing the flute, woodworking, um, whitewater canoeing. You know, they're thinking of those sorts of things when I say, what do you love to do? What's your passion? Always they have to do with the arts, the body and the natural world. And then I ask them to keep their hand in the air if they learned about the thing they love the most at school. And just imagine when you do this in a large crowd, like at a conference and there's a thousand people, all the hands go down except for maybe two or three. And then if those people are willing to reveal what it is that they love to do, that they in fact were introduced to at school and have continued to pursue, Everyone will say, I learned how to, um, to do carpentry and shop. I learned how to play the trumpet in high school and I kept going. Um, and they will still be those sorts of activities that other people identify. But, but as I said, with rare exception, they've been introduced to them at school. And that's what I consider real learning. Learning that we do when no one's watching, learning that isn't being evaluated by someone else, learning that's fun, joyful, frustrating, romantic, painful, spirited, and that engages the, the mind, the body, the, uh, the emotions, the intellect, the soul. And, and a lot of the conferences that you are having are with educators and they raise their hands so they have a consciousness of this fact that they didn't necessarily learn what they loved most in school. Uh, but why then do you think that so many educators have trouble transferring that kind of appreciation into the classroom and into their interactions with the students and, and, and the construction of units that they have for students? I think it's a combination of things. Um, part of it is just we inherited a curriculum that was made up at a time when putting children in schools was better than putting them in factories. And while they were sitting there, we may as well teach them something. Um, and we have this idea that if they don't learn certain things like 
quadratic equations in grade nine, then somehow their life will not be fulfilled or they won't be able to be productive and happy citizens. Um, I think part of that legacy still lives very strongly. I think also um, people feel, no matter what we say about differentiated learning, that everybody has to have the same experiences. So if we said to people, what do you most want to learn? And one kid says, I want to learn how to um, make sushi. And another kid says, I want to learn how to play drums. The teacher says, I don't know how to do that. And therefore, everybody will be introduced to sushi and everybody will be introduced to drumming. And they don't ever get into a a deep exploration of the thing that might later become a passion. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's years and years and years and centuries of, of doing the same thing and doing it well um, and not questioning whether there's a different way to learn. And what about in terms of the role of technology and how that's being implemented into the classroom, uh, into educational systems, pedagogies? How do you think that has helped or hindered the learning process within the classroom and without outside it? Technology is a tricky one. Um, (laughs) I would not want to be living without it right now in the middle of this pandemic. It's been one of the best ways to connect with people. It's been a terrific way to um, maintain some rituals and uh, habits that are important to many people, myself included, like music making. Um, I would not want to be living without it right now. And I think uh, somebody once said to be anti-technology is like being anti-food. It's not the case that technology is good or bad or that food is good or bad, but there are choices that we can make that are healthier and better than others. So my view about technology is if it, in the case, in this context, if it is in the service of learning, then I'm all for it. But if it's the other way around, if it's technology for technology's sake, or it's um, not really deep learning, but kind of a, a surface engagement then I'm not so keen. And um, I'm going to digress a bit here, but when I graduated with my doctorate in the mid-80s, I remember, and then I did a postdoc at MIT, and I, I graduated from Harvard, which is, you know, considered one of the great schools in the States. And I remember coming home and going to the very woods that I was at yesterday, thinking, I've got all this education, and I don't know how to grow my own food. I don't know how to plumb a sink. I don't know how to build a dwelling. You know, like what on earth does this education mean? And it was at that stage that I basically learned how to do all those things and built a cabin in the woods and figured out how to um, live in a self-sustaining way. And in that context, I thought a lot about technology. Um, No power where the cabin is, um, no running water except off the roof into the rain barrel, and no power tools. So what does that mean about technology? Uh, I needed tools to build, of course. And you know, one of the things I learned really early on was what kinds of saws were best to use by hand. And the best technology I found was Japanese technology for hand saws. And so I really sort of have used that lens on technology ever since. 
is it in the service of what I want to do? And is it technology that I need? And if it is, what's the best I can find? But in order to do that, you have to really fundamentally and start with this idea of knowing how to learn and you have to learn how to learn and how to go find things out and even having that curiosity to go do so. I, I sometimes, and by sometimes I mean often, wonder whether or not mm-hmm. having these set curricula and these exams where you have to to just you know uh, be assessed on something that uh, an instructor decides that you have to be assessed on, how that can kill this idea of learning to learn because you're just receiving and then spitting out, receiving and spitting out. How do you see kids um, uh, going around this? Because they're, they're doing it when they're on YouTube. So why can't schools, in your opinion, figure, you know, let them learn to learn in, in, in ways. And and you touched upon this, but maybe you could go a little bit uh, deeper on that since you brought up your example. Yeah. I mean, I think your phrase learning to learn is probably um, an important one. And, not surprisingly, I was thinking about the conversation that we were going to have as I was hiking out this morning. Um, the other thing I didn't mention is the cabin is two kilometers from the nearest road. So I carried it in on my back. I learned how to do that too. Um, one board at a time. Um, no, that's not true, actually, more like six. But anyway, um, I was thinking as I was hiking out that I have a plumbing issue, ironically, with the sink. And I thought, oh, when I get back, I'll have just enough time to look that up and ask Dr. Google what to do. And as I was coming out, I thought, oh, yeah, when I built this place, you know, 25, 30 years ago, um, there was no Google. And I remember asking people. I remember looking things up um, in libraries, in in books. You know, those things, probably you haven't seen one for a while. No, that's not true. I know you have lots. Uh, but I remember... Uh, using the resources that I had at the time to find the answers that I needed. And fundamentally, the technology has changed, but the process hasn't. I still need a good question. I still need the descriptors. When I search with Dr. Google, I need the same kinds of descriptors that I needed when we once used card catalogs in libraries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I need to know how to ask the question, and I need to care about the question. You know, I mean, you probably wouldn't have been so interested in plumbing this morning as I was. Uh, so I think one of the things we don't do well, typically in schools, is make sure that the kids care about the questions that we're asking them to engage with. Um, and I don't think every child and every question has to be child-driven. I think there's a really important role for teachers to expose children to ideas and to topics and to disciplines and to hard problems and to paradoxes. But I think where we go wrong is not paying attention to where that spark of motivation ignites and then letting the kids take the lead for next steps. And one of the things that I've been privileged enough to do is see you in action uh, with uh, adults, with teachers, uh, and and the units you construct uh, might be driven by science or might be driven by music, but that's just the placeholder that we put in the schedule because so much more goes on uh, in terms of bringing in uh, all these different elements, not to use the word STEAM, but different uh, elements across disciplines and, and just more replicating and, and, and looking like 
you know, real life and what we see in the outside world. How do you construct your units in such a way as to provide them with the opportunity to ask questions? Because I, I, I just want to guide you here in the sense that I, they do a lot of things with their hands. How do you make it so that you give them the room and the confidence to, to tinker and, and, uh, and, and ask those questions? Well, I think we do a lot of our learning through our hands and through our bodies. I don't think it's a coincidence that when people think of what they love to do the most, it usually has quite a physical component to it. Um, And so I think we underestimate how much you learn in an embodied way and don't allow for a lot of it in terms of of scheduled time at school. Um, In terms of how I construct units, I never construct a unit alone. There's your, you know, the first part of the answer. Um, I always do it with, uh, with colleagues and sometimes with students, depending on how old they are. And I think one of the units that we did last year when you and I were teaching in the same place um, that was the most successful was, was one that was done with grade two students on studying bees. And that involved, I would say, at least 10 or 12 teachers in the collaboration and the planning of that transdisciplinary unit. And the opening question for that unit was, why should we care about where honey comes from? And that doesn't, you know, on the surface, it's, it's, doesn't seem like a particularly deep question or, you know, it's beguilingly simple really is what it is. But in fact, asking that question led those kids and teachers into a 12-week journey um, that had ramifications long beyond the unit uh, ending that really engaged kids. And, you you know, you use the word STEAM. There were STEAM elements, lots of science, lots of writing, lots of conversation, lots of mathematics, um, every subject, music, of course, deeply um, involved. So uh, I, I think Perhaps, you know, I'm not answering the question terribly well, but the answer is uh, not a question that looks like a standard curriculum question, I guess. And And a question, I think one of the reasons that question works so well is because it had an emotional component. It was asked, why should we care about where honey comes from? And that... That is asking people to engage in a way that's very different from describe the 17 steps of honey production. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and I have to agree. And I, and I remember that unit and, and the, uh, the, the kids ended up building hotels for the bees. Uh, not, yes. not, not, not houses, not uh, beehives hotels yeah. um, <laughs> and those uh, hotels uh, were only about oh i don't know half a meter high and <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but the those the idea of those of course was to provide um uh habitat for wild bees which are often solitary and have very limited spaces to go in grounds that are pristine and cared for as the school was um, and find themselves, you know, unable to maintain the population. And wild bees are as important or more important, well, I say as important as the domestic bees that pollinate a third of our food. 
And I want to switch over a little bit to the university world uh, because a lot of the goals, unfortunately, of schools or parents or students and teachers and, and all that is to get kids to go to the right university, whatever that may be. Um, and and, and there's, there's, there's a lot of options and, and, and a lot of different kinds of universities themselves. How do you see universities changing and the roles of universities changing, uh, not just through COVID, but just recently in terms of, say, for instance, the emergence of nanodegrees or the fact that uh, or there's, there's so much student debt out there. But what do you see as things that are progressing in, in the world of, of, uh, of tertiary education, but also maybe can challenge it? Another interesting question. You're doing very well on the question front here. <laughs> um, so I haven't thought a lot about nanodegrees. I have thought a lot about university debt because I have two children in university right now and one of them is contemplating grad school. Um, so yeah, that one, that one is current. <laughs> On your mind, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what I am uh, most taken with in terms of that question is that you asked about university and not about community college. Absolutely, you're right. And um, I think that reflects a bias that some of us might have about the trajectory of, of um, elementary, secondary, and then post-secondary being equivalent to university. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you another story because I love stories. Uh, in 2003, I decided I should, I'd done a lot of building by this point, and I thought maybe I should learn how to draw. And um, now that I know how to hammer a nail, you know, what, what, what about drawing these things? So I enrolled in a course in architectural technology at a community college um, about 45 minutes from where I live. And I have to say that until that moment, I had not really understood or considered the college experience. Um, I've been very university-centric. I was a you know good student. I went to grad school. I did law school. I did all that stuff. And um, then I became a professor. And it struck me that when I had been for several decades preparing teachers for um, the classroom, I had also imagined that they were preparing students to carry on to the form of post-secondary education that I knew best. I knew squat about college. And here's what I found out. I found out that some of the best teaching I've ever experienced was at that college absolutely amazing teachers who had been architects and come back to the classroom. Um, Also people who'd been builders and construction workers who'd come back to the classroom who were teaching me in ways that I hadn't experienced ever in my undergrad. I also discovered that I would say only about a third of the students wanted to be there. Another third were there because they didn't get into university and they felt like failures. And another third were there because they were told to go. You know, their parents said, you have to go to college. And the part, the the group that was most painful to me were the university wannabes who felt like failures because they were in a community college system in a program that was exceptionally good and was going to get them a job at the end of it. And um, I have to say that I I was struck by uh, how little I knew and how much I learned from my my student peers. During the program, in the third year of the program, there was a, a 
province-wide strike of faculty members. It went on for two months. There was maybe one or two mentions of it in the newspapers in the province, and then it was forgotten. A year before, York University was on strike for five days, and we had radio programs, television programs, news coverage up and down and sideways and back and forth and in and through. And the college-wide strike of the whole province, nothing. So I was so deeply made aware of how that's kind of considered a second-class post-secondary experience. And as a student, I was angry. So I'm going to rephrase your question um, and say... uh, Universities are stuck between K to 12, maybe in the professional world, but I'd say that colleges are less stuck. And how can we bring more attention to what happens in those colleges to educate the people who fix our cars, plumb our sinks, um, design our websites, create our radio station programs, you know, blah, blah, blah. Cut our hair. There's another one. Cut our hair. I haven't had my hair cut for two months. <laughs> Believe me, I understand that one. I don't think I've, my kids have seen my hair in about two months either. <laughs> um, the, the, the next, and it's still higher education. I mean, I, I look at my, my kid, Nico, who you know, um, you know, bright kid, uh, very entrepreneurial. Uh, I, I really worry about him at university. I just don't know if it's the right place for him. I think he'd be better off doing nano degrees in specialized areas or, or, or do something uh, that, that gets him from point A to point C as quickly as possible rather than having to sit through four years. Um, yeah. But you know, he doesn't even see that as an option simply because it's been told to him that he has to go to university. And so do you think that you, know, you bring up the, 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 the wanting to unstick Stuck, unstuck. Um, the 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 colleges <laughs> out there, but do you think that? Um, do you think there's hope? Do you think people will realize, especially with with the technology that's out there and 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 people going on these different courses, that that we're going to head in the right direction, or are we here to stay for a long time? I feel that one of the drivers will, as usual, be an economic one. If universities become again inaccessible, except for those people who have the the money to go. Um, I think these other opportunities will open up sheerly because of the economic strain of sending kids to university. And then, you know, with with luck, we'll find out that there's some good options there and that we prepare some people in pretty interesting ways. Um, and I, you know, I think the the this is another example of what we were talking about earlier, where one size fits all classroom teaching doesn't work because we don't have one size fits all learners that of course continues to post-secondary and beyond and there's life beyond post-secondary too an ultimate question for you is uh in terms of the population of teacher students that you're seeing over the past few years um do you see any difference from say uh, a decade ago, two decades ago, now? How do you see people's mentality coming in and what they want to do in terms of their ambition? Is it the same, or, or do they see things differently? Are you talking about the teachers that I prepare for the classroom, that, student teachers? That's right. Yes. Yeah. What changes do I see? Um, uh, I'm, they're not all positive. Um, Certainly the facility with technology is clear and that's uh, 
a given, I think, with the age group that I work with, which is people, adults in their young, uh, early 20s. Um, <laughs> I find that their language skills, oral and written, are much weaker than they were a decade or two decades ago, and I find that very disturbing. And I also find that their ability to uh, create an argumentative thread, a logic line, is less developed than it was 10, 20 years ago. I uh, don't know why that is. It, as I said, it disturbs me greatly. Um, I don't think it's something necessarily that we can attribute to the prevalence of technology. That's the one thing that's changed at the same time, but I, you know, I'm not one to uh, imply cause and effect from correlation. But I really don't find that their language skills are what they need to be or what they once were. And as far as their experiences to prepare them for teaching, I think they're just as rich. Um, we've always attracted at our university, and it's partly because of our admissions process, uh, which is half academic background and half life experience. We've always attracted interesting people because they have to have an interesting life <laughs> to get into the program. And by interesting, I mean that they've pursued various things. They've uh, done volunteer work that's been meaningful for them in a variety of of ways. Many of them have traveled. This is pre-COVID, of course. Uh, many of them have worked in developing communities. Um, quite a few have accomplishments and skills in the physical disciplines, in sports, in arts. So that, that piece has been fairly constant. Um, but yeah, I would say that they're te technologically more skilled and in terms of literacy, less so. Well, listen, Rena, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to speak with, uh, with me and our listeners. And I just wanted to ask you a last question. What's next for you? Uh, maybe a little bit longer horizon uh, in terms of your professional goals uh, into 2021, let's say, because the next few months are going to be a bit weird. Yeah. What are my long-term goals? You know, one is to modify some of my music teaching from what I've learned from teaching online during the pandemic. Um, mm. I made up some uh, activities and tasks to substitute for face-to-face, -face, and some of them were better than I did face-to-face. -face. <laughs> so I'm actually going to incorporate those in next year, you know, whatever blended um, format we have. Um what else is next for me? More gardening. I uh, don't know that we're going to have great fresh food here in the winter. So um, in the near future, I'm expanding my gardens, probably doubling them this summer, which is exciting and fun and fulfilling. Um, I haven't spent enough time playing the piano or playing the cello. So that's also uh, up next for me. And at the end of all of this, which will never end, of course, we're just going to go from one coronavirus to another, I suspect, I will probably write about it and write about it in terms of how um, it's changed teaching and learning. Thank you so much for joining us on the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. 
You can find out more about Dr. Rena Eupidus on her website, www.renaeupidus.com. And of course, we always invite you to come to the blog that Charlotte, Hank, and I have put together, which is www.coconut-thinking.design, where you'll find a whole host of blogs, articles, resources around curriculum innovation and progressive education. We hope you'll join us again soon for the Meaningful Learning Podcast. Again, this is Benjamin Freud, and I hope we've been able to add a little bit to the conversation about what it means to create meaningful learning experiences for students.